You turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and so we'll continue to do that. Matthew chapter 10. I don't know how far we'll get today, but let me read our text for you just so we have it fresh in our our mind. We've pressed through uh, beginning in verse 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you should speak or how. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We see ourselves kind of peering over Jesus' shoulder as he gives these instructions to the twelve. They're at a stage where they're getting ready to be sent out on their first missionary journey. And so Jesus wants to share these instructions for them. They're not going out for a long time, several weeks, maybe a month at the most. It's kind of like an internship, you might say. But he wants them to be aware of the fact that there's a world out there that's hostile, not only to him, Christ, but to his message and to his representatives. He's sending them out into a Christ-rejecting world. And so he wants them to have no high expectations that everybody's just going to kind of reach out and go, Oh, come on, kumbaya, let's just get together and, yeah, we'll listen to your gospel. He sends them out briefly, but he wants to give them a taste of what they're going to face when they're finally sent out after Christ leaves the earth. And that's how you train somebody. You take them and you show them something and you watch how they, they watch you do it and then, and then maybe you, you let them do a little bit and then pretty much you're letting them do it, but you're watching them. And then after a while, you're just letting them do it. That's what Christ is doing here with his apostles. But this text, this portion of Scripture, it comes as a unit. And it's, it's very important that we understand what is going on here because you could really get messed up if you look at this in a wrong way. It's, it's kind of a, a Scripture that unpacks itself as we go. Think of it kind of as your, you know how you, I don't know if you're little, you had one of those little telescopes, you know, you pull it out and you, you go like this, you know, and the, the telescope extends itself. That's kind of what he's doing as he's teaching them. He's extending the application of this, not only to them immediately in their time, but he's extending it even as far as at the end there in verse 23, it says the Son of Man comes. 
speaking of Christ, when he returns to earth. So just in those few verses, you're covering thousands of years. And if you don't understand that going into it, you could really mess yourself up. But he wants to give them principles that are not only related to them right here, but also to even people who are going to deal with some of these issues of persecution in the tribulation, and even for us today. And so it's very applicable. But he wants them to understand that, first of all, in verse 6, we already went over this, they're going to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. They're going to Israel. They're going to preach to Israel. That's what their task was. They weren't to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans because they couldn't do that culturally, and we talked about that. And so it even moves on beyond that. And so we see it here span and a sweep of all history from, from God's people from Jesus' time all the way into his second coming. Some of these applications can be made. And so he sees the twelve on his on this first mission, but with his incredible prophetic eye and with his he knows everything, he's omniscient, he looks even into the future. And he sees those who will represent him in the church age. He sees those who will represent him in the great holocaust that will take place during the great tribulation. And the terrible opposition that they will face. Now we we looked first of all, just to kind of go over where we've been here. In verses 1 through 5 we've looked at some insight into the apostles themselves. And then last week we looked at, last couple weeks we've been looking at verses 5 through 15. And that talked about the specific directions that Christ was giving them. Specific instructions as to their mission. And today we're going to begin a section, verses 16 through 23, and it describes how the world will react to them and how they're to react to the world. And then finally, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, we see how he describes to them what it's going to cost them to be his disciples. So we see who they are, what they're to do, how the world will react, how they're supposed to react to the world, and then ultimately the price that has to be paid in order to represent Christ. You know, because there is a price. We we don't talk about that a lot today in our Christianity, but there's a price if you're going to follow Christ. Yes, salvation is free. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But there's a price. It's kind of like if somebody after church was real blessed to the Lord, and they came up and said, hey, you know what? We just want to bless you, Pastor. We bought your brand new Porsche. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's right out here. Take it for a spin. Man, I really like this. Let me tell you, it wouldn't take too long before I got home and shared this new car with my wife and, you know, and said, well, did you get it licensed yet? No, I got to go get insurance for it. Oh. That's not in the budget. We, we can't afford to get insurance on a Porsche. Are you crazy? Well, but it was free. <laughs> yeah, it was a gift. But we can't afford what it's going to take to maintain this gift. See, some people come into Christianity blindly. They think, oh, yeah, it's just all roses. They think, oh, yeah, salvation is free. There's a cost to following Christ. And that's what he wants to share with them. Now, 
If you don't understand the context here that this goes on throughout history, it telescopes into the future. Then in verse 8, that we went over last week where he says, you're going to go out and you're going to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. It's interesting to me that when you read about their first missionary journey and they went out, they didn't do any of those things. Not one. Were they being disobedient? He said they're going to do it. They didn't do it. And see, critics of the Bible say, yeah, see, that's, that's not right. It's saying they did it, but they really didn't. See, they don't understand the context. They're not talking about their first missionary journey. Matter of fact, they didn't do any of those things while Christ was on earth. It was only after he left earth, after his ascension, that the apostles began to have these incredible, miraculous signs being done. So it wasn't talking about necessarily this missionary journey. He's talking about the next one when he says that. Or in verse 17, when it says, They will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. I'll have you know that these guys went out on this missionary journey, and nobody did anything to them. Why? Because he's not talking about this time. He's talking about sometime in the future. They weren't persecuted at all until after the resurrection of Christ. Think about it. Even in the garden, when Peter, what did he do? He tried to cut off, well, he cut off a, tried to cut off a Roman soldier's head and he missed and he got the ear. They didn't even do anything to him. See, it wasn't until after Christ's ascension, after the resurrection of Christ, that they began to feel the persecution that he was talking about. And so he tells them very specific things. He goes, go right to Israel. And then later, he says, raise the dead. You'll raise the dead. You'll be persecuted in the synagogues. All those things. And all those things sweep through these thousands of years that are going to happen. Some of them are uniquely fulfilled only in the tribulation. And the reason I explain that is because you have to understand that. Or you're going to read this and go, well, this isn't right. And that's not uncommon for the Bible to unfold a passage that way. Many times in the Old Testament, the prophet will make an immediate prophecy concerning somebody right there physically. But you know what? That's also fulfilled thousands of years later through somebody else. David often spoke of some event that was going to come to pass or an attitude or something like that. Something about himself that was dealing with himself, but it also applies to the Messiah. That's how scripture is. An example of that is in Micah 5.2. It says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Okay, great. Well, the very next verse, 3 and 4, it tells us that he's going to come and reign on earth. There's no time there. He didn't talk about the thousands of years between his birth and the time he's going to come and reign on earth during the millennial kingdom. So sometimes when you read and you understand, seek to understand scripture, you have to be careful how you're interpreting it. You have to make sure you put it in its context. He's predicting the role and the place of the apostles, but he also has in mind the ultimate sense of this persecution and some of the things that we're going to talk about that will sweep through all history, even up into the Great Tribulation. So if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand this chapter. But if you do understand that, that it's unfolding as we go through time. It makes it a little easier to comprehend what he's saying here. So this is the Lord's basically sending them out. It's, it's their ordination of the twelve. 
their first internship. And it was a pretty big deal. He was laying down the the groundwork for their first missionary journey. And we know it's a big deal because he starts off there in verse 16. The very first word he says is, Behold! (laughs) I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. When you stop and you think about what he said so far about sheep and all this stuff, uh, I don't know a whole lot about sheep. I'm told that our family had, I believe, two sheep even before I was born. And they called them Yum Yum and Dum Dum or something. I don't, I don't know, some weird name like that. And I hear stories about how stupid these sheep were. They do the stupidest things. And people tell us that sheep are so easily scared and panicked that even, like if they're in a a flock, a a jackrabbit jumping out behind a bush can send the whole flock into like this rage of stampede. They're very edgy animals if you've ever been around sheep. And it's a good thing because they don't have any defense mechanism. They need to be on edge. And they're totally defenseless. They're totally, utterly helpless. The only thing they can do, if you think about it, is run. You ever look at a sheep? Got this big round body and these four little toothpicks for legs. So I don't think they do that very well either. And there's all kinds of dangers that would face sheep even today, but back in Jesus' time, even more so. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And he has some incredible insights talking about the experience as a shepherd. He said, the sheep need to be protected from poisonous weeds. (laughs) So the shepherd has to go ahead of the flock and make sure that there are no poisonous weeds in the flock's path, because they'll just eat them and die. They're also vulnerable to weather Parasites, which attach themselves to the sheep body, all kinds of diseases, especially insects. In fact, there's certain kind of flies that are so, so much of a problem to keep sheep, uh, to, to, they're a problem to sheep, that sheep have commonly been known to beat their heads against rocks or trees until they're dead to try to get rid of these flies. Because the flies are buzzing around their ears and their eyes and they just go nuts and they start beating their head against a rock. Crazy. Oftentimes, flies will land their eggs in their eggs, uh, in their eyes, and ultimately that causes blindness to the sheep. Sometimes the sheep will panic and stampede in an attempt to elude flies. But in the stampede, ewes will lose their lambs and will become exhausted, and they'll eventually die. Beyond all of these, the most severe enemy, he writes, of the sheep is the predator, the flesh-eating wild animal, the wolf. There's one record that two wild animals, wolves or wild dogs, they weren't seen. One incident, they've been known to kill as many as 292 sheep in a single night. That's a lot of sheep, beloved. Philip Keller writes, Ewes heavy with lamb when chased by dogs or other predators will slip their unborn lambs and lose them in abortions. A shepherd's loss from such an incident can be appalling. 
He says, one morning at dawn, I, find, I found nine of my choicest ewes, all soon to lamb, lying dead in the field. On several occasions, these cunning creatures came in among my sheep at night, working terrible havoc in the flock. Some ewes were killed outright, their blood drained, their livers eaten. Others were torn openly and badly clawed. Some had huge patches of wool torn from their fleeces. In their frightened stampede, some had stumbled in broken bones or rushed over rough ground, injuring legs and bodies. Despite the damage, despite the dead sheep, despite the injuries and fear instilled in the flock, I never once actually saw a predator on my range. So cunning and so skillful were their raids. They defied description. See, if you lived in Palestine and in Israel in the time of Christ, you would totally understand this. You would understood the severity of the task of the shepherd who had to defend his sheep against all these things. And it's interesting because the shepherd didn't even own the sheep. He was just the caretaker. And even if one of the sheep died, some people say that it was up to that shepherd to actually bring back a piece of that sheep's flesh. Even if they had to pry it from the wolf's mouth. Because if they didn't, they could be accused of stealing the sheep themselves. Because that kind of thing went on. So the shepherd really laid down his life back then for these sheep. Because stealing was something that was punishable by death. And so the conflict between sheep and the wolves is very common to the disciples in Jesus' time. They totally understood what he was talking about. And so the Lord says, Behold! <laughs> Are you ready, guys? Are you excited? I've been training you. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out. This is your first big internship, your first mission trip. Behold! I'm going to send you out. And to give you a little taste of what it's going to be like in the future... You're going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. Notice it doesn't say you're going to be in fear of wolves arriving. It doesn't say that. No, I'm going to throw you right smack dab in the middle of the wolves. I mean, that's not a very thrilling Call to ministry. I know when I was ordained into the, the ministry, I, I, they didn't talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, sending them out of sheep, that's kind of a neat thought. Ken read for us out of John 10. You know, we have that whole text that talks about Jesus is a good shepherd and sheep and, and all this. That's a good, good, good thought. He knows his sheep. He loves and he cares for the sheep. They know his voice. But the idea of being among vicious, ferocious, destructive, deadly wolves, really that's the way the Lord wanted to illustrate to them that you know what, you're going to have to be, you're going to be confronted by a godless, Christless, helpless, really, uh, society out there that's going to reject you. Sometimes the wolves are among us. 
In case you haven't remembered, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul said to the elders of the Ephesian church, here's what he said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So don't think you're safe within the four walls of the church. No, yeah. Uh-uh. There could be wolves among our midst. Romans 8.36, Paul said, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as what? Sheep for the slaughter, he says. When's the last time you heard that as a description of the Christian life? Some people just view Christians as sheep to be slaughtered. Sometimes the wolves are on the outside, but sometimes they're on the inside, masquerading as sheep. Remember, we went through that in in Matthew 7. Jesus says the wolves are out there. You're defenseless in and of yourselves. But that's how it's going to be. You're going to be victims. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would send panic through me if I was one of the apostles. I mean, we get nervous... When we have a, say we have an evangelism class and it comes time part of the class, okay, well, you know what? Just kind of, kind of play like this guy's a non-Christian and you're a Christian and just pretend you're sharing the gospel. Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not really good at this stuff. And, you know, we crawl back in our little turtle shell. I mean, these guys are going out into a Christ-hating world, beloved. And he says, behold, it's a a word of amazement. In other words, what I'm going to tell you, you're not going to believe this, guys. I mean, you would think the Lord would say, men, I'm going to send you out as wolves among the sheep. Because he's already looked out over the, remember, the the, the lost. Remember that? And he looked down and he, he saw them as what? Sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. So you think he turned to the apostles and said, go get them, guys. Go take the gospel to them. He doesn't do that. He says, no, you're going out as sheep among wolves. It doesn't mean we're going to lose, <laughs> unless you get too depressed here. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean that God's not going to come through for us. What it means is, you know what, you don't have the resources within yourself to deal with this kind of thing. That's why it's so wonderful when we read John 10 and it talks about the good shepherd because what's he do? He gives his life for the sheep. Literally. He will defend us, the Bible says. I mean, Jesus is always so open and honest, isn't he, about stuff like this? I mean, that's just the way he is. I remember, you know, I mean, sometimes we just kind of, you know, we're afraid to say just what, you know, what's on our mind or we're afraid to say what, you know, what maybe the truth is because we don't want to offend anybody. Remember when I first came to Grace Bible Church, probably within the first couple of weeks, you know, I'd been in the office here and I'd get phone calls and, you know, well, tell us about your church. And I'd, you know, well, it's Bible Church. And, well, um, are you charismatic? You know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a new pastor. I don't want to offend people. I want people to come to our church. Well, what do you mean by that? That's what I'd say. Well, um, you know, do you uh, do you guys speak in tongues? Or no, do, do, usually they would say, do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? 
And I say, oh, sure, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I know what they're saying, okay? I just want them to come to our church. <laughs> so I didn't want to, you know, just say, I mean, we're not a charismatic church. You know, we don't do the tongues thing and the, you know, Benny Hinn and all that. We're not that way. Now, if you call today, that's kind of a, you know, as a matter of fact, early on, I forget who it was, some people would, would call the office or call, um, you know, I know my wife got a call one time when she was here, and uh, I think it was David Villapondo. And he said, well, you know, hey, uh, I've got a question for you. And he started uh, asking her about, uh, do you guys, you know, ask about church a little bit? And then he said, well, um, did you guys have women pastors? And my wife's like, oh, um, well, no. Well, why not? This is David Villapondo. Somebody used to come to our church, and he was part of our church for a long time. But my wife didn't know who was him. She didn't even know him at that time. It was like the first couple of weeks. He's just testing us, I think. But you know my wife well enough to know that she's not, you know, one to beat around the bush about things. And she says, because the Bible doesn't teach us to have women pastors. As a matter of fact, it forbids it. And she listed some verses off. And he said, well, that's good to know. <laughs> And she's like, what do you mean? He goes, oh, this is David. I, mean, I go to the church. I was just checking you out. <laughs> See, I mean, sometimes we need to be bold with what we believe. And Jesus was always bold. He was always honest. He was up front. I mean, we're so concerned today about getting people saved that pretty much we water down the gospel to, you know, you could preach it to a dog and they could get saved. We don't talk about repentance. We don't talk about confession of sin or humbling oneself or hungering or thirsting for righteousness. We're just talking about happy in Jesus. We don't talk about things like the lordship of Christ, obedience, the narrow way, or the cost, the price that it takes to follow Christ. I mean, when's the last time you... We're around somebody who became a Christian, became a believer, and you said, okay, you know what? I just want to let you know that now you're going to, when you, when you leave here and you go out into the world, you're going to be like a sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, I wouldn't tell a new believer that. Why? It's the truth. There's some ferocious wild wolves out there. Any volunteers to go witnessing? <laughs> See, the world's way is, is different than Christ's way. The world talks about ease. The world talks about comfort. The world talks about riches. The world talks about advancement, ambition, all those things. And Christ is basically the opposite. He offered hardship and death. <laughs> That's what he did. So you want to follow me? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to have trial after trial after trial, and eventually they're going to kill you. So if you want to follow me, get in line, but that's what's going to happen. And you know what, beloved? You know, I, I really believe we might as well tell people the truth. Because we're surely not doing any good when we sit somebody down and, you know, we make them feel all happy about Jesus without having any conviction over their sin. And they walk away thinking, well, now I'm a Christian because they prayed some little prayer. I mean, what good does that do? We're just being deceptive. And then we make excuses for him. You know, they go out and they live in the same disobedient lifestyle they, as they did when they came into the church. But what do we say? Well, they're a new believer. Give them time. Show me in the Bible where people came into contact with Christ and they weren't radically changed on the spot or there was no change at all. That's what happens when someone's saved. You don't learn Christianity. God transforms you. He makes you a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. 
That's what my Bible says. So next time you talk to somebody who's just spiritually deflated and, and there's, there's no evidence of Christ in their life at all, but they're holding on to some little commitment they made, some stick they threw in the fire years ago at some camp, you might want to tell them, you know what, pal, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you've never trusted Christ for your salvation. Maybe God has never transformed your heart. Maybe you're still lost and on your way to hell in your sins. Maybe your heart needs to be broken before God before you get saved. That's what the Bible says. So many times we come to Christ thinking, oh, what am I going to give Christ? He can use me this way, that way. He doesn't need to use any of us. He doesn't promise anything like that. He says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost you something. Garibaldi, in 1849, after the siege on Rome, said to his soldiers, here's what he said, Men, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger, thirst, hardship, and death. But I call on all who love their country to join with me. You know what? They came by the hundreds. After Dunkirk, Churchill said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. See, similarly, our Lord offers blood, sweat, tears, hunger, thirst, and death. That's what the Christian life is about. I mean, that's, that's the honest portrayal of what Christ has to offer us. And you know what? He never sends anybody out into battle without telling them the truth. And that's what he's doing here with his, his disciples. He's getting them together and he's saying, guys, you're going out there and it's not going to be easy. I mean, life on the mission field is tough. Any missionary will tell you that. But it's also tough to be a missionary at home. And just to say, if you're not suffering much persecution, maybe, could it possibly be? It could be the result of not being definitive about your faith. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I mean, God also may be gracious to you in giving you a time of rest, but at some point along the line, you're going to face some opposition. You're going to face some persecution. Somewhere in the world at all times, the church is suffering persecution and it's being devoured. Christians are all over the place. I got a copy of World Magazine this week and I was just reading it this morning. Al Jazeera TV reported last month that it received an audio statement from Al-Qaeda's North African branch claiming responsibility for the June 23rd shooting of an American aid worker. In, in Mauritania, according to the message, the authenticity of which has not been verified, the Islamic group said group members murdered Christopher Leggett, 39, for allegedly trying to convert Muslims to Christianity. Leggett had lived with his wife and four children for six years in the moderate Muslim nation where he taught as a computer scientist 
and language school teacher in a poor neighborhood. He was, he was, he was murdered because of his faith. See, it's becoming clearer and clearer, I think, to us, even in the United States, that we're going to experience some persecution. We're definitely going to experience some persecution. I mean, when you have the President of the United States quoted as having said, we are no longer just a Christian nation. I mean, what, where, where, we, where do you think this is going? If we are definitive with our faith, there's always going to be a price to pay. We can thank God for this breath of fresh air in America. We live, we don't have persecution here, but don't think it's not going to happen. It is. And when it does, the answer should be, you know what, we're going to obey God, not man. When, if it comes down to that. Because we have a mandate from God to preach the gospel. I remember someone asked me, what if, what if uh, you know, the church doesn't ordain you? If we, if we don't uh, put a, a, a license on you and say, you know what, you're a, a pastor here at this church. Not from this church, this is one of the first churches I went to. I said, well, I'd, I'd still go in the ministry, I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm called to do. <laughs> It's it's important to understand we have, we all have a mandate from God. And so much of Christianity is is locked up inside our church walls. You even wonder if the world knows what's going on, knows who we are. You can't confront a God-hating, Christ-rejecting world without some reaction. Well, as we look at this passage in Matthew 10... I want us to kind of just ask ourselves a couple questions. First of all, who are these wolves? Who are these wolves? It says, I'm going to throw you out there in the midst of wolves. The twelve are told that they're going to be persecuted. It didn't happen until after the crucifixion. The disciples didn't experience any persecution until after the resurrection. But it's going to come from wolves. We know the sheep are who? The apostles, right? That's the illustration here. I send you forth as sheep, he says. And then in verse 17, basically it tells us who the wolves are. They're men. Human beings. I mean, it's true we wrestle against principalities and powers and against rulers and darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's true. We wrestle against a demonic spiritual foe, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the rule of the darkness of this world. He's behind the whole world system that's before us. It's supernatural. It's demonic. But he uses humans as his agents. The enemy is other men, other women. Throughout the years of God's people, it's been men who have slaughtered the saints, who've had them in prison, who crucified them, who burned them at the stake, who stoned the saints of God. It was actual physical men who did it. Men snuffed out their lives over time. It takes place like that today. 
Over in India, there's, there's persecution of Christians going on in other countries all over the world. In Matthew 5, as we went through there, we saw in verses 10 and 11, he says, Blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. See, the assumption there is that men do those wicked things. That's why maybe in your Bible it's in italics there. It's on a human level. That's the agents that that Satan uses. And it's already kind of been around the Lord at this point when he's with his disciples. Remember back in chapter 9. Once he forgave the sin of the paralyzed man, the Pharisees moved in. In verse 11, chapter 9, they went to the disciples and says, Why does your master eat with the tax collectors and sinners? The persecution was coming. The, the, you know, the, the, the opposition was there. Eventually, in verse 34, they said he cast out demons through the prince of, of demons himself. He, he, he's demon-possessed. That's what they were saying of Christ. Stop and think. There was even a wolf among them, Judas... who would come out of their midst, ultimately, and betray Christ, delivering him over to be murdered. See, that's why verse 17 says, well, who are these wolves? Beware of men. Keep your eye out for men. They're not your friends. Now, by that, I don't mean to, you know, well, I have some friends that aren't Christians, and they're nice guys. You know, yeah, sure they are. But I don't want you to forget when you reach out with Christ's message, the gospel, and you try to love someone with the love of God, they're not all going to just embrace that. Very few will. The Bible says we're to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. So you have to have a balance here. But realize that the enemy will attack through human agencies. Don't be shocked when they criticize you. Don't be surprised when you're fired from your job for articulating your faith. Don't be surprised when you're not invited to the parties or certain activities. Or don't be surprised when some girl or guy dumps you because of your faith. Don't be surprised when all these things happen because these human agents represent the kingdom of darkness. You might say, well, you know, we don't experience that much persecution here in the United States. I mean, there's probably some here and there. But not like other countries. I think a lot of that has to do with our own willingness to compromise the message down to the point where there's nothing confrontational about it anymore. We've taken the gospel of Christ and we've boiled it down to five little happy laws. And the message of the gospel today in so many churches is not, is not what, you know, uh, what you've done to offend God, but what God can do for you. He can meet your felt needs, whatever it is. And there's a whole marketing strategy behind it. If you know anything about marketing, you know that the message has to be palatable. If you're going to get the message out, I mean, you don't, you want to say it, you know, in a, in a, just a nice way and make everybody feel about it so they'll buy your product. Or you can't buy Christ, first of all. And the message of the gospel is a glorious message, one of forgiveness, one of grace through 
Christ. But it also costs. The gospel begins with lostness. Someone were to ask me, how, how can I be saved? The first thing I would probably tell them is, you know what? Do you understand that you are a sinner? Because if you don't understand you're a sinner, we don't have nothing to talk about. If you're going to sit there in front of me and say, well, no, I'm a good person. Fine. You can be a good person all the way to hell. Because unless you come to the point where you understand that you're lost in your sin, you can't understand the gospel. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. How would you like to share that with somebody when you're sharing the Lord with them? How do you get saved? Well, first of all, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. You know what is true of God by the creation around you. But you have turned the truth, Paul says, into a lie. And you worship the creature more than the creator. And God has given you up to your own lusts. Then maybe you could go on to point two after they get up off the floor. I mean, that is so different from how we share the gospel today. But Jesus says, when you preach, preach repentance. Preach the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you do that, you're actually going to confront people with their sinfulness. And when you are confronting the agents of Satan, about their sinfulness, you can count on a reaction, and it's not going to be a pleasant one. That doesn't mean you go out looking to offend people. That's, that's not the point here. And we're going to get into that probably next week, how, how we are to conduct ourselves. But what he's saying is that, you know what, when... He's giving us this principle. When we recruit for ministry, people need to be reminded that they're going out as sheep among wolves. You've been involved in any kind of ministry. You understand what it's about. People will misunderstand you. People will misrepresent you. People will criticize you. People will make up stories about you. People will do all sorts of things. And you've got to make a choice. And you have to accept it as part of it. To be honest, sometimes I think the physical suffering would be easier than some of the emotional and mental anguish that's tied in with ministry in general. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. I just want you to see this from Paul's perspective because he really kind of understood this in a way that uh, we don't today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men, what? Condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. How's that for recruiting? You want to be an apostle? Well, here's, here's what's going to happen. All of you who would like to be appointed to death, get in line. 
If you want to be made a spectacle of, get in line. If you want to be thought of as a fool, get in line. Naked, buffeted, filth, off-scouring. Line up. Welcome to the mission field. That's what it means to be a representative of Christ. From Paul's perspective, that's what he's saying. That made spectacle, it's a very interesting term. It talks about when a Roman general would win a battle, they would parade their troops through the city, through the streets, and everybody would line up to see the winning thing. And all the way at the end, of when all the, the soldiers went through and everything, they would bring those who they held captive, the enemy, in their chains, and they'd drag them through the streets, and people would mock them and throw things at them. They would be made spectacle. That's what happens to someone who lives out their life. For Christ. He says appointed to death. Jesus told Peter that he would die. And eventually he did. Most of them were martyred. Verse 10 says we're fools. Who wants to be thought of as a fool? They think our message is foolish. Verse 11 says, we'll be buffeted, a, mean, a word which means to strike someone with your fist. See, we don't understand that in this country, but in some countries, this goes on all the time. It says, Paul says, we're filth. That word is, is used to describe a dirty scab. In offscoring, that would be what was wiped off a dirty dish. That's what Paul is calling Apostles. That's what call, Paul is calling someone into ministry. I mean, how's that for a call into ministry? Good definition of an apostle. Paul, what's an apostle? He's a spectacle appointed unto death, a fool who's knocked around by people's fists, and also he's considered filth and something to be scrubbed off the plate. Who are the wolves? The wolves are men, beloved. Why are they so vicious? Second question. Why are they so vicious? Verse 18 says, Brought me before governors and kings for my name's sake. It's very simple. They're vicious not because they hate you. Feels like they do. But because they hate Christ. You know, believe me, you go up to somebody and you talk to them about the great Giants game they had no-hitter, you know, the other night, and boy, they'll probably talk to you all day long. You go up to them and start talking to them about their sin and how they need to repent and come to Christ, yell when they talk to you. Same guy. They don't like the message. Look at verse 22, it says, back in uh, Matthew 10. It says, you shall be hated of all for my name's sake. That concept of name refers to all that Christ is. You know, when we pray in Jesus' name, there's nothing magical about that. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, will you pray to prayer? And Steve, you didn't, you didn't end the prayer in Jesus' name. Okay. So is that like a magical word or something? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not so much the words we use. What we're saying is, Lord, we want to put this under your will. Your will be done, not mine. So when he says you'll be hated for my name's sake, it's saying you're going to be hated because of everything I represent as being Christ, the Messiah. 
It's because of who he is and what he's done that we're going to be persecuted. That's what he was telling him. If we are persecuted because of who Christ is and what he has done, it has to be obvious, if that's going on, that we are doing what Christ wants us to do. That we are identifying somehow with Christ. That's why we would be persecuted. In Galatians 6.17, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Visible, visible marks on Paul's body. There were scars from stonings, from whippings, from beatings that he had to endure. To him, they were the marks of Christ. They weren't intended for him. People weren't angry with Paul. They were angry with his message. They were upset at Christ. Since they couldn't strike Christ, they got who represented him. That's why Christ said, hey, yeah, they they persecute me, but just wait. (laughs) You ain't seen nothing yet. They actually took his life twice. Paul, once he came back, finally they chopped his head off. It was because of who he represents, because of who is living in him. He prayed this prayer. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to identify with Christ's sufferings. See, when the kingdom is built... When God's work is being done, Satan will cause people to react. They will rebel, they will criticize, they will condemn, they will turn you away, they will falsely accuse you, whatever. But you know what? That's okay. You just stand there and you take the blows because you're doing it for Christ. In fact, it's a joy to do it. Over in Acts 9, when Paul was on the road... To Damascus, you remember Saul was on the road to Damascus, and he was slaughtering Christians by the hundreds. The Lord strikes him down, he blinds him. You know the story. And he's on the ground in verse 4. Says, A voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, he was persecuting Christians. He was, in his mind, killing Christians. But in God's mind, no, you're 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 persecuting me. And in fact, that's how he, he said, who, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Paul never met Jesus. Jesus wasn't on earth that time. He was in heaven. So how was Paul persecuting Jesus? Because he was persecuting who represented him. And that stayed with Paul. He brings it up in Acts 22. He brings it up to Agrippa in Acts 26. That illustration. It stayed with him. He understood what it meant. They're ferocious, not because they hate you, but they hate the message. They hate the Savior that you represent. Next week, we're going to look at how wolves attack. And it's it's, it's very important that you understand when you go out, how, how this takes place. But let me say to you this morning, 
that this is not something that is a uh, feel-good message. You know, it's, not, it's just not. I mean, I wish it were. But see, the good part of this message is when we go out and we live for Christ and we do it in an honoring way, we do it in a way that represents Christ legitimately with our lives, and then we share the truth of the gospel, we don't water it down, we see glorious things happen. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. God will honor that. So the next time you have a temptation, you feel a temptation to shy away from sharing the truth with someone about Christ... Because maybe, well, they won't be your friend anymore. Maybe they won't talk to you anymore. And, you know, we, we've taught, been taught today in evangelism that basically we have to draw this thing out. You know, you got to be somebody's friend for 10 years before we can actually get down to actually sharing that they could die and go to hell in their sins. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. I say do it the other way. Cut to the chase. You meet somebody, maybe you got a new coworker at work, take them out for lunch and share the gospel with them. You know, I'm a Christian, and here's what God has done in my life. He's forgiven me. I was nothing. I was broken and everything. Give him your testimony and say, you know what? He wants to do the same thing for you. Because you need him just as bad as I do. I mean, what's the worst thing that happened? They never talked to you again. But at least in your mind, you've shared the truth with them. And I guarantee you, if you do it in a loving way and in a caring way, they're going to be intrigued. Maybe God's working in their heart. But so many times, we don't even go there. We're afraid. It's not politically correct. It forbids us to do that. So we have to think of those things. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that as your your word clearly says, that when you said, behold, to these guys, you truly had some information for them uh, that would blow their minds, that you weren't sending them out as wolves, but they were going to be thrown into the middle of a pack of wolves being sheep. And Father, we know that these wolves basically represent the system of the world as we know it, men, women, whoever is against the gospel. And we know that when they attack us, they're not really attacking us, they're attacking you, but that doesn't make it feel any better. That doesn't change that we don't bear the consequences of those attacks But, Lord, when we look in light of what you've done for us, that's nothing. The fact that you came to earth in the first place just blows my mind. Perfect, sinless God being willing to come down to this filthy, vile, sinful world. Leave his place in glory. Not only that, but to live amongst us in a human body. And deal with all the hunger and the hurt. And the sweat and the tears. And being God the whole time. And then being willing to give up your life. For people who couldn't care less. Being beaten. Being ultimately crucified. What a shameful death. For someone who has never done anything wrong. And yet you took on yourself, Lord, the sins of all of us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. 
Father, I pray that we would re, be reminded of that, that, that when you came down to earth, that was the plan. You knew that from the beginning, before the foundations of the world. You were to be the Savior of the world. And Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for convicting us of our sin. Lord, if there's anybody here today who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I don't know what may be holding them back. It could be fear, the unknown. It could be change. I don't know. But God, I pray that you would break through that barrier as you always do, and transform them. Show them their need, their desperate need for a Savior. Have them to cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Grant us this through your grace. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.